Let's carry on our reading. Um, chapter 9, which is a long chapter, and then a very tiny little short chapter included with it. Let's hear again God's word. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of, the, of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. And all the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and devouring, destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Parshadatha and Dalphon and Aspatha and Portatha and Adaliah and Aradatha and Pamsatha and Arisai and Aridai and Vaizatha, the ten sons of Haman, the sons of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, and also the ten sons of Haman. What then? They have done in the rest of the king's provinces. Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to the king to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded that this, this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa. But they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives, and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested, and made that day a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th, and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day of gladness and feasting, 
as a holiday and as a day in which they send gifts of food to one another. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days in which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday that they should make them days of feasting and gladness Days of sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast poor, that is, lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his son should be hanged in the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, And of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined with them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year. That these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province and city, And that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihel and Mordecai the Jew, gave full authority confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed season, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring, with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, And it was recorded in writing. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. And all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people, and he spoke peace to all his people. Amen. We thank God for his word. So last night when we got to the end of chapter 7, 
the great reversal occurred. Do you remember the poetic justice of what we read about? Haman was dragged away to the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. He was a wicked man who fell into the trap that he had dug for others. So why do we need three more chapters? The reverse has happened, and now we get this quite lengthy epilogue to the whole thing. Hadn't we already reached the end of the story? Why do we need all this extra material? Material that in some ways sounds quite repetitive as we hear over and over again about these different edicts and letters that were sent out and what people were commanded to do and what they agreed to do. Why do we need all the extra material? Well, I want us to look at that, really asking three different questions. The first one is this. How exactly does the gospel reverse things? That reverse word, it's really important. It comes up the whole way through Esther. How does the gospel reverse things? Then secondly, what effects do those reversals have on people? And then finally, how do we keep the memory of those reversals alive? How do we keep it alive? How do we remember? What are we to remember? So how's the gospel reverse things? What effects do those reversals have? And then how do we keep the memory alive? So first of all, how does the gospel reverse things? And see here two things. First of all, from verses 1 and 2 and then verse 15, note the fact that Esther is given riches and Mordecai a position of honor. According to Persian law, when a traitor was executed, all their estate went to the throne and it could be distributed in whatever way the king saw fit. Well, here Ahasuerus makes the decision to give all of Haman's property to Queen Esther. And this was no mere token gesture because Haman was a very wealthy man. Remember him bragging to his wife about all his riches? Well, all of it goes to Esther. Esther's given riches. And then Mordecai, he is given the royal signet ring. The very same ring that only hours beforehand had been worn by Haman. Now it is given to Mordecai and it is put on his finger. Mordecai now is the second most important man in the empire. Later that day, when Mordecai goes out from the king's palace into the city of Susa, in verse 15 we read that he was bedecked in royal robes of blue and white. He had a great golden crown in his head. And he was wearing this beautiful robe. So it's, it's this great reversal. It's a transformation. Mordecai has been lifted up from the ash heap on which he was seated. And he has been raised up to inherit a position of honor. He's exchanged sackcloth 
for royal robes. Now that's a great description. We'll talk more about it in a few moments, but it's a description of the kind of reversal that the Lord God loves to effect. In his gospel, to the poor and the broken and the destitute, he grants riches and honor. But our passage also shows another one of the great aspects of a reversal that God brings about. And here we're in verses 3 to 12. And here I'd sum it up by saying, the decree of death is replaced with a new edict. So at this point in the story, Haman's dead, but Haman's decree is not dead. It was still very much alive. Across all those 120 provinces of the empire, there was a clear and present danger for God's people because Haman's edict was still hanging over them like a sword of Damocles. As things stood, in a matter of months, it would be open season for genocide. And that law that Haman had brought about, it could not simply be set aside. I've said on a number of occasions what the law of the Medes and Persians was like. It was proverbially set in stone. Couldn't be broken. The king was bound by his earlier edict. It was impossible for it to be removed from the statute books. So we're left asking, what's going to happen to God's people? Yes, Haman's dead. But what Haman has set in motion... It is hurtling towards God's people. Well, the Lord really had brought about a great transformation in Esther's life. And now, once again, God was going to use Esther for his glory. Previously, when we first met Esther in this book, she appeared to be someone who was really only concerned about looking out for number one. She had been very willing to hide her Jewish identity. She had been content to blend in. But now we have seen how God has changed Esther's heart. And now her great concern is that she will stand shoulder to shoulder with her people. And she's determined that once again she will use her influence for the cause of God. So in verse 3. Chapter 8, we find her once again going before the king without being summoned. Can you hear, can you feel just the intensity of her plea? Haven't really heard Esther like this before. In the past, when she's been speaking, she has been the epitome of someone who is a shrewd and masterful operator. But this time, Esther is full of passion. She throws herself at the king's feet and it's as if the floodgates just open and with tears running down her face, she implores the king, please do something to save my people from this pogrom, from this final solution. And the king, for a second time, holds out the golden scepter in order to receive her. 
In verse 5, she manages to gather herself. She regains composure and she brings her request. Once again, knowing exactly how her husband ticks, she knows that to communicate, she's got to speak his language. So she says, if you care about me, if you're concerned for my happiness, then grant me this request. She's really masterful because she distances the king from the previous royal edict by simply talking about the letters that Haman sent out. And her request is that the edict would be revoked. But that was impossible. The law of the Medes and Persians could not be revoked. It was set in stone. As far as the king was concerned, his hands were tied. He had done everything that he possibly could. He had given Esther great wealth. He had given Mordecai this high position. But there was nothing that he could do with this conundrum. The old law was in place. It could not be repealed. But a new law could be written. A counter-edict could be issued that would do the exact opposite. And so in verse 8, Ahasuerus gives them permission to write a new law and to seal it with his ring. And that new edict will stand the whole way across the Persian Empire. Now, there are at least two people here who know something about drafting government legislation. It requires skill. It requires assistance. And so in verse 9, they call in the royal officials. We need a new law. And they produce a new edict that will grant the Jews the legal right to defend themselves if attacked. We read about that counter-decree in verses 10 and 12. And I think just the lovely thing about this is that the second decree uses exactly the same language as the first decree. It follows it almost line for line. It's as if simply word by word, It is cancelling out the former decree. The original edict was designed to unleash this brutal attack on the Jews. And Mordecai's counter-decree is like a carefully measured suit of armour. It fits exactly. It affords the Jews protection from every aspect of the first decree that had gone out. So let's try to think how this preaches the gospel to us. The decree of death, it is replaced with a new edict. Can you think in your mind where we're going with this? There was a decree of death. It had to stand, but a new edict could cancel it out. So we're seeing how the gospel reverses things. The gospel grants a place of great honor. It brings great riches. And the old law of death is replaced with a new edict. 
Those reversals, they're part of the gospel that's woven the whole way through the Bible, Old and New Testament. They are reversals that find their most glorious expression in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because the unchangeable decree that hung over God's people in Esther reminds us of another decree of death. God had said very clearly that the soul that sins will surely die. We should be under no illusion that the wages of sin is death. That decree stands. It cannot be revoked. And so the question, we talked about it last night, is the problem of justice. How do you break the unbreakable? Someone says, well, why doesn't God simply forgive? God cannot break his word. Every single one of his royal decrees stand forever. So how does God deal with what, from our point of view, looks like a problem? He is just. He must punish sins. And yet the gospel announces that sinners can be forgiven. Well, the great king, the one on the higher throne, he is not like King Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus, he washes his hands of the whole thing. As far as he's concerned, he abdicates responsibility and he passes the matter over to others. I can't do anything. You do what you can do. The Lord God is not like that. In his great love, the Father sends the Son to do the impossible. The rescue plan that is devised is truly incredible. The gospel brings about a reversal more wonderful than anything that happened in this chapter. Jesus Christ came as a humble, suffering servant who was obedient even to the point of death. On the cross, he bore the sin of his people. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was brought down into the grave, and he was laid in the tomb. And then God effected the greatest of reversals. The Father raised him from the dead and exalted him to the highest place at his right hand. Mordecai's elevation was only a little foretaste or preview of this greatest of reversals. Death swallowed up in victory. Triumph snatched from the very jaws of defeat. And through that, God has done the impossible. God has done what the reversal necessary so that when we come to Jesus in repentance and faith, God is faithful to what he's promised and he is just in forgiving our sins. The riches that Esther and Mordecai inherited, they are only a little picture of the internal inheritance that belongs to those who are united to this Jesus. In him, we are blessed not simply with the wealth that Esther was given, but we are blessed 
with every spiritual blessing that there is. And just as Mordecai was clothed with royal robes, so in Jesus we are given robes of righteousness that we never deserved. That's how the gospel reverses things. The edict of death is replaced with a decree of life. And a high position and great blessings are poured out on all who are in Jesus. So that's the reversal. Secondly, let's ask and answer this question. What effect do these reversals have on people? If God does all this in the gospel, what does it do to people? What effect does it have? And here we're looking at verses 13 and 17. Once the new decrees drafted, mounted couriers took it to all 127 provinces of the empire. It's sent to each nation in its own language via the extensive Persian communications network. The king, he throws his full weight behind this. He allows horses from the royal stud to be used to speed this message to the furthest corners of the empire. The new law gives the Jews almost nine months to prepare to defend themselves against those aggressors who would have attempted to enforce the original decree. And when the horses and their messengers arrive, when the edict is publicized, when it's proclaimed and read, it has two wonderful effects. Verse 16, first of all, God's people, they had light and gladness, joy and honor. When they heard the decree, it was a cause for great celebration. It's another one of those wonderful reversals in the story. When the first decree went out, people were thrown into confusion. There was weeping and mourning. And now when this edict goes out, there's the complete opposite. Fasting is replaced with feasting. Mourning is turned to joy. And grief is transformed into gladness. So that's one effect of the new edict. And the other effect is in verse 17. When other people heard this, they professed faith because fear had fallen on them. People heard it and they were converted. Verse 17, many people declared themselves to be Jews. Some of them probably, like Esther, who had been compromised and who had blended in, hiding their true identity, they now came out of the closet. And some of them could well have been Gentiles. This great reversal People responded with awe and faith because they saw that God was at work, defending the cause of his people and being faithful to his promises. And the gospel has exactly the same effects on people when it is proclaimed today. Our written edict is the Bible. It's read and preached and Its words become a source of joy and gladness. And it's really interesting that the Jews started to feast as soon as they heard the edict. I think that's interesting because if you think about it, from a certain point of view, it would have looked as if their future was still hanging in the balance. Their enemies still had legal authority to act against them. King Ahasuerus was still a most fickle man. 
And Mordecai might fall as quickly as Haman did. Esther might, for a second time, fall out of favor. But still, when the new edict is publicized, all God's people started to celebrate, even though they had not yet experienced the victory that they were celebrating. They were anticipating it. And when they heard, they rejoiced. Why would that be? Why would they celebrate? Even though it appeared as if there was much uncertainty in front of them. Well, the answer is because when they heard about what had God had done in the past, they knew that the outcome was secure. The reversals that they had seen were a guarantee to them that the final great reversal would take place. And that meant that they could rejoice. So even though difficulties lay in front of them, because they were confident of the final result, that meant that they could rejoice. Let me try to illustrate this. Um, I'm going to try to illustrate it with an illustration from football, which is a bit surprising for me because I don't really know anything about football, but (laughs) I found this out in the internet. (laughs) Presumably some of you will know the incident that I'm referring to. I've only read about it. In March of this year, kind of nod if I'm on the right tracks here, Barcelona were trailing 4-0 following the first leg of their clash with Paris Saint-Germain. Shortly after halftime, Barcelona's cause looked hopeless. They needed to score three more goals. The second half dragged on, and it looked as if their hopes for the competition were lying in tatters. No doubt there were some people in the crowd that night who were wondering if they should leave the stadium early and just give up, get home, and avoid the rush in the crowds. Nothing more happened in the game until the 88th minute. There was a goal from a brilliant free kick, and then a penalty was scored. And finally, in the 95th minute, there was a goal almost in the last kick of the match. It was the first time in Champions League history that a team had ever come back from four goals down after the first leg of a European Cup tie. They pulled off... The impossible. And the final score in aggregate was Barcelona 6, PSG 5. Now, imagine if you had taped the game. But before you got round to watching it, you had heard the final score. Maybe you'd read about it in the paper. You had heard it on the news that the game had been turned around in the most dramatic way, that there was some final great reversal. If you knew that the outcome was secure, at the halfway point, you would not have been downbeat. You would not have been thinking, well, I'll just give up on this because there is no point watching the end of it. At the halfway point, when things were looking bleak and hopeless, instead you would have been full of gladness and joy because you would have known that something dramatic was about to take place. 
something wonderful was going to happen before the game ended. You wouldn't be like the spectators who were giving up. Instead, you would be full of anticipation because you knew that you were about to witness a great reversal. See where we're going with this illustration? In the middle of the Christian life, from a certain point of view, we look at, out at our circumstances and it seems as if all is lost. So many times when our dreams, they can just be lying in tatters before us and we think, well, I might as well just give up on this because nothing good can come out of it. And it's at times like those that we really need to remember the words of the edict. What God has sent out to us in the scriptures. Because this book tells us of the great reversals that God has brought out. And hearing those words gives us the guarantee that the future is secure. And that has got the power to rekindle our joy in the present, when we know what the outcome is, even when things appear to look hopeless, we can rejoice. And if Esther the Jews had cause to rejoice from what they saw, we have infinitely more reason to rejoice than they ever had. Our joy ought to be far, far greater Because the hope that we have is more sure and certain than what they even could have dreamt of. The word that we have, it's not sealed with the signet ring of a fickle, self-interested earthly king. The hope that we have is sealed by the blood of Jesus Christ and it is guaranteed by the reality of the empty tomb. So what effect ought this reversal to have on us? Well, it ought to fill us with great joy and confidence. Because despite what your life might look like at the moment, we have proved